Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. What if you eat only plant-based protein sources? Do you get a lesser response because of that? The tricky thing is we don't want to compare them in fair conditions. So we want to compare a plant-based diet to an omnivorous diet, but they both have to be taking what we think is appropriate protein intake. So we bump up the protein intake in both groups. We knew by then that the breaking point to reach additional protein doesn't matter much for you to gain muscle. It's about 1.6 grams per kg body mass. So that's where our target was. We offered, of course, a plant-based protein with the soy isolate. And for the omnivores, we did with whey protein. We were very lucky in that. They're similar for strength, for muscle mass, weight, and everything else. We want to make a fair comparison. That's Hamilton Rochelle from the University of Sao Paulo. And this is episode 137 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Howdy friends, here we are again together. Welcome back. I hope you've been keeping well. And for any individuals joining us for the first time, for the very first time, welcome. We're all super happy to have you with us. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. Each week on this show, I sit down with various guests from all across the world to talk about health and wellness typically with a nutrition focus. And today is no exception. In fact, today is an extra special episode. It's not too often that you get to hear from a scientist who is on the ground, in the lab, in the trenches, conducting clinical trials with humans. Usually it's others communicating the science sort of from arm's length. And While there's nothing wrong with that, it's also great to chat directly with the people in the lab, the people conducting the studies themselves. I think their insight and perspective is really important. And recently, there was a really interesting study out of Brazil led by Hamilton Rochelle, the head of the Applied Physiology and Nutrition Research Group at the University of Sao Paulo. This study was really unique. It was the first of its kind, which we'll discuss in this episode. For now, what I want you to understand is this study took 38 young, healthy male adults and directly compared a plant-exclusive vegan diet with an omnivorous diet. The study involved three months of resistance training. This was adults, young, healthy male adults put into the gym with the only difference between the two groups being their diet. Half were getting their protein and calories from only plants, and the other half getting their protein and calories from a mix of plants and animal foods, an omnivorous diet. The researchers wanted to see if there was a difference in strength and muscle growth between the two groups. Being the first of its kind, of course, this study has been widely discussed and its results critiqued. There have been many things said about the study. And 
I wanted to to explore a lot of this in, in much more detail and hence the invite to Hamilton to come on the show and have this conversation. In this episode, we walk through why Hamilton and his team wanted to conduct the study in the first place, what the study design looked like, what the results were, what we can and can't say from the findings, and what Hamilton would like to continue to explore with further research. Of course, we do pause throughout the episode, particularly towards the end, to make sure that there are plenty of take-home practical tips. We break down the most important things to consider for anyone wanting to promote lean muscle growth and strength, not only food-related, but also supplements, creatine, beta-alanine, pre-workout supplements, etc. So if you are wanting to know what a scientist with zero conflicts of interest thinks of this area, then please do set aside the next hour or so and clear all distractions. I will say, slight disclaimer, this episode is perhaps a tad more sciencey than other episodes, but I'm pretty confident even those with minimal exposure to this area of research will still walk away feeling more informed. Along the way, I do my best to summarize and clarify things as, as best as possible to ensure that we're all on the same page. So if you hear me do that and think, I already know this, Simon, just remember, I want to make sure that we are all learning and people are coming to this topic with different levels of prior knowledge and understanding. With all of that out of the way, what I'm thinking is we jump into it and then Let's reconvene on the other side to have a bit of a debrief together. I'll even share a few extra bits of information that I discussed with Hamilton after this exchange. How does that sound? Good? Okay, great. Here we go. It's time to welcome Hamilton Rochelle from the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil. Hey, Hamilton, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I contacted you recently after one of your new studies was published on the plant-based diet versus omnivorous diet in the individuals doing resistance training. It was a really, really interesting study, and I'm looking forward to sharing that today with the listeners. But before we do delve into that study we connected about an hour or so ago and there was some noise at your lab. You were in the lab and, and you could hear the fridge. So you've now gone home. I'm interested in learning a little bit, I guess, about what a day in the life of Hamilton looks like as a nutrition science researcher in the lab. What is it that you get up to and how do you sort of spend your time? Well, first of all, once again, thank you for the invite. Thank you for having me over at your show. I do follow your content. It's awesome. I love it. And it's an honor to be here. Thank you for the interest in our work too. Life of a scientist is not that exciting, I think. We do work a lot in front of the computer, dealing with the data the students collect. We run a lab. The name of the lab is Applied Physiology and Nutrition Lab. So 
what we do mostly, we do the interaction between nutrition and exercise and chronic diseases and exercise performance as well. And there's this whole bunch of PhD students that work with us, postdoc researchers, and they're the ones doing data collection. They're the ones out there doing the exciting stuff. We're in the lab dealing with the data, dealing with the analysis, this sort of stuff. And you're based in Sao Paulo, right? Yes. What was it that initially led you personally into the field of nutrition science and sports medicine and saw you sort of pursue this as a career path in the first place? Yeah, that's a, a sort of an interesting story because I started in research real early uh, as an undergrad student, actually my first semester as an undergrad student in exercise physiology. I took interest in what is this stuff, wh why there are labs in here. And I, I didn't understand what what is it that they need labs for. That got my attention and that grew on me the interest and the desire to do that stuff. And since then, it's been a while now. The undergrad courses as a postdoc later, now as faculty for the last 10 years. Then I got two bachelors. I got exercise physiology and as a nutritionist as well. A registered dietitian, I think is the proper name in English. Um, and over your career so far, can you speak to, I guess, some of the major areas of specific study that you've looked at with your research? What, what is it that you've tended to study? We do have a very big interest in chronic diseases in our labs. So uh, we're into the School of Medicine in our university, the University of Sao Paulo. And specifically, we're uh, based in the rheumatology division uh, inside the School of Medicine. So we do get access to a lot of rheumatic patients, different uh, rheumatic diseases, and not only, but mostly rheumatic conditions. But uh, I, I do do a lot of stuff with elderly, obese individuals. We had a series of uh, very cool studies with bariatric surgery patients in which we dealt with exercise training and them after surgery as a way to enhance the effects of surgery, the metabolic and the cardiovascular, muscular effects, deleterious effects of surgery, and to boost the good side of the surgery as well, because there are not only good things that happens when you go through bariatric surgery. And it was a really cool set of studies. Uh, it was like six or seven papers that we published on this team. I looked you up online at all the papers that you've published and you've published a lot of different studies in your time. And most of the studies or all of the studies that you do are with humans. Is that right? Yeah, we, we do work with human physiologists. So I'm interested, and this is again, some background information before we get into the particular study that we're going to speak to today. How is it that nutrition researchers who are doing the primary research as you are, how do you decide what to study next, what questions you want to explore. Um, science, of course, has a lot of interaction and the applied sciences, of course, has a lot of interaction with what the demands of the actual field of practice gives you back as problems that you need to solve in order to feed the practical field with information so they can do a better job. So we were very interested in applied sciences. We do a lot of clinical trials in our lab, but we do dig deep into the mechanisms, the physiological mechanisms as well. So it's a mix of what is needed in the field with what is personal interest is, uh, as scientists. So it's, it's a bit of a mix. And with regards to the study you published early 2021 
on a high protein plant-based diet versus an omnivorous diet in individuals that were doing resistance training. What was the backstory to this particular study? Why were you interested in this? Is it a result of plant-based dietary patterns becoming more popular around the world or specifically more in Brazil? A bit of that, yes. I personally do a lot of studies in protein metabolism, different ways of supplementing or messing with the protein intake in different populations and specifically looking at muscle physiology in this sense. And the question about protein source has always been an issue in the field when you talk about protein metabolism and sports nutrition, this sort of stuff. And yes, plant-based diet is a growing thing around the world, I think. And yes, in Brazil too. I personally, I must state that I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian. I love the idea. I love the concept. I'm working on it actually after the study, to be very honest. I did some personal improvements in that area, but I didn't have that bias coming into the study. Yeah, which is important. I think that's important for you to sort of say that on the record. And what was your hypothesis going into this study after you decided, okay, this is an interesting question we want to explore? What did you think the results were going to be? This is a funny story because I always get that, especially from people who are very much into the plant-based or the vegan diet. What did you think it would be different? And sometimes I even get, this study wasn't even necessary. It's, it's a very, uh, <laughs> I already knew that and this sort of thing. And, and, and it's funny how people think that their personal practice actually uh, translate directly into science. And it's funny, but uh, coming into the study, we had to have a background that made sense. And I'm not saying that's exactly what we expected. But when you look at the data available, when we register the study, we do register our clinical trials in this platform. It's called clinicaltrials.gov. And when you do that, you have a premise already. And the premise at the time, what we knew at the time, was mostly based on acute studies looking at protein balance, not protein balance per se, but a muscle protein synthesis response as a function of different protein sources. So knowing that, we felt that would make more sense to tie the whole story. So if that is true, what might happen is this. So that's why we think that based on the acute studies showing that the capacity or the ability of plant proteins to increase in muscle protein synthesis is less than what you see when compared to animal proteins, what you should expect in the long term is a lesser response in hypertrophy, for example. Okay, so just to clarify that, going into your study, the hypothesis was that the omnivorous diet would likely be superior to the plant-based diet in terms of strength and lean muscle because more acute studies looking at muscle protein synthesis, which is essentially a biomarker, had shown that animal protein was more anabolic. Would that be correct? Yes. In simpler terms, that's correct, yeah. Okay. And we might come back to this point at the end when we discuss your results, but I guess here maybe we touch on why is in an acute study animal protein more anabolic? What is it about the animal protein that makes it more anabolic? Not all proteins are created equal, we can say that. Uh, so the amino acid profile of different proteins 
they differ very much, especially when you're comparing animal and plant proteins. This is somewhat classic in nutrition. I'm not saying, I'm not using the terms quality as most people use, like high quality and low quality protein. But it's known that when you compare a single protein, a plant-based protein and an animal source of protein, they differ significantly, especially in terms of essential amino acids. And we know that the trigger for this stimulus for muscle protein synthesis, it depends on the increased levels of intracellular leucine, actually. So you need to get that leucine in blood then into the muscle cell, and that will increase the signaling for muscle protein synthesis. And given the different amino acid profile, when you compare one single protein isolate to another, you get a different response. Okay. So going into the study, hypothesis is the animal protein will be more anabolic and should lead to greater improvements in strength and lean muscle growth. Now, before we jump into, I guess, the sort of methodology and the study itself, how you conducted it, the other reason, am I right, for conducting this study that sort of separates it from much of the research that was out there already was that you decided to look at a not just the addition of plant protein and whey protein to the average diet, which would consume you know, a baseline diet of both animal and plant proteins in their diet, but you wanted to really look at a diet where both the protein supplementation and the foods that they were eating were completely plant-based versus omnivorous. Is that right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, because the idea was what we had in the literature at that time was they took omnivorous people and they supplemented their habitual diet either with animal or plant-based protein, usually soy. So they get people with similar habitual dietary intakes. They both eat animal protein and they give to a group a surplus of protein via whey protein and the other group via protein soy isolate. And then you're not comparing an exclusively plant-based diet to an animal source. You're comparing this supplemental protein to their habitual diet. And what I wanted to ask is, okay, what if you eat only plant-based protein sources? Do you get a lesser response because of that? And the tricky thing is we want to compare them in fair conditions. So we want to compare a plant-based diet to an omnivorous diet, but they both have to be taking what we think is appropriate protein intake. So we bump up the protein intake in both groups. We want to make a fair comparison. Okay, so let's go through that methodology, the study design, uh, how you achieved the same protein intake between the two groups and what that protein target was and why you chose it, what the resistance training involved and so forth. So we knew by then that the breaking point to each additional protein doesn't matter much for you to gain muscle. It's about 1.6 grams per kg body mass. So that's where our target was. We wanted everyone to be taking in 1.6 grams per kg body mass, with the difference, of course, being the protein source. So what we did is that we did a very thorough assessment of their habitual dietary intake for both the vegans and the omnivores. We tried to understand what the variation was in their habitual intake. So you could calculate what would be the amount necessary to reach that 1.6 grams per kg body mass. And that's how we done it. We assessed everyone and we individually tailored the amount of supplement that each subject would take each day 
in order to be at that level. For the vegans, we offered, of course, a plant-based protein with the soy isolate. And for the omnivores, we did with whey protein. Some people ask this as well. Why did you do it with supplements, not with food? Because we need the control, right? It's an experiment. We need to make sure that everyone is taking the same amount of protein because that's the premise for the study. So when you do it with food, there's variation in consumption in type of food. So we wanted to make a statement knowing what we're talking about. So we assessed that throughout the study as well. And we were able to verify that they kept this protein intake actually a, a bit above uh, 1.6. Both groups ate 1.7 if you round that up throughout the entire study. So we're very, very successful in that in that sense. And so just to sort of clarify something, that 1.6 gram sort of threshold that you were wanting to achieve, that was based on science showing that's the amount that will maximally trigger muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, of course, there's a range, but 1.6, when you do like a biphasic linear regression, that will be the breaking point. I mean, until 1.6, you expect the amount of protein to make a difference. Above that, it doesn't matter much. Gotcha. Tell me about the participants themselves. What type of people were they? I understand that this study wasn't randomized as such, and there was a really important reason for that. Can you speak to how you recruited these subjects, who they were? Yeah, you're very right to say that this wasn't a randomized trial. And the sole reason for that is that, again, the premise for the study is that we get exclusively plant-based protein eaters, and those would be vegans. So we used vegan individuals as a model for the study. Some people say, why didn't you get omnivorous people and turn them into vegans for the duration of the study? We didn't want to do that for two reasons. First, compliance. And this is not like in order of importance, but one of the reasons, compliance, it wouldn't be easy to make them stick to a vegan diet for three months. And second, the residual effect of being omnivore. So we don't know what that would be because you're an omnivore and tomorrow I turn you into a vegan. How does that affect muscle physiology? Do you get a bigger impact? We don't want it to be unfair with a plant-based diet in any way because what could happen is, this is hypothetical, of course, but you would miss the high quality protein that you're used to take and you get a lesser response because of that when we didn't want that to be a factor. So knowing that this would be one of the critiques that we would get with the study because it wasn't randomized, but we chose to go with vegans and omnivores, but they're very similar individuals. If you look at the tables in our study, that baseline, you see that they're very much alike. That's in our favor, actually. Yeah, so these individuals had adopted either a vegan diet or omnivorous diet for at least a year before the study. And that is an interesting point. I actually had never thought about that in terms of, say we think about, and again, this is hypothetical, but say zinc. If you have lower zinc in your diet for a while, your body can adapt to that and then increase absorption and you might get better at utilizing it over time. So I think that was a well thought through part of your trial in terms of making sure that these people had already been eating that way for a while. Tell me about the resistance training part of the trial. What did that involve? And perhaps speak to, I guess, the type of individuals that were recruited in terms of their experience with training. We didn't recruit individuals that were actually training 
Because of two things, it's always very hard to match those people for their, how much of their potential they've already developed. That's a very, very tricky thing to do. We've done loads of research with trained or experienced trained individuals in the past, but that adding up the necessity of their being either vegans or omnivores would make things so much harder. And we don't think, despite some of the comments I've seen online, we don't think that because we didn't use already trained individuals, our data is weaker because of that. But anyway, they're not weak individuals and no means. In order to get into the study, they had to have a score in 1RM test. 1RM test is the abbreviation for one repetition maximum test is a measure of strength in a given exercise. So let's say a common exercise that we actually use that leg press. I think most people are hearing us knows what leg press is. So there is a specific test that assesses how much weight you can lift in a single repetition with proper technique of that specific exercise. That is called the, the 1RM test. And in order to qualify for the study, they had to have a score of at least three times their body weight on a leg press 1RM. So it's not like negligible. They're not weak individuals. And if you look at the baseline tables, they're scoring the 1RM for the leg press test is 3.5 their body weight for both groups. We were very lucky in that. They're similar for strength. They're similar for muscle mass. They're similar for weight and everything else. So we got a pretty good matchup between the two groups. Okay. And so the idea there, speaking to what you said earlier around, if you take individuals who are already resistance training, you don't know how much of their potential they've already reached and how much of that potential have they squeezed out. So in many respects, the untrained individual who still is a healthy adult and it still is strong, has a lot of potential, is a bit like a blank canvas. Yes, exactly. And that has two sides of the story, right? Because someone might say, yeah, you get good results because they're an experience. So they're a blank canvas. They had a lot of potential to develop. That's why they gained so much muscle. And at the other end, you can see that as a good point, because if this was such a detrimental or such a, an important factor for their adaptation, because they're so easy to adapt, the omnivores should get that much more muscle mass, which didn't happen. Okay, so in terms of the specific training, what was the protocol? What kind of workouts were these individuals doing? You mentioned before this was a 12-week trial. You assessed their baseline diet, I believe, for a couple of weeks before then. Then you had them increase their protein intake over that 1.6 gram per kilogram level. You had the two different groups, one doing it completely plant-based, one doing it omnivorous, and they were doing the same training. Can you speak to what that training involved? Yes, of course. You already asked me that. I forgot to answer. Yeah, we did a supervised training. We have a training center at the university and we have trained researchers to supervise these training sessions. So all training sessions were monitored and supervised by research staff. So they trained exactly the same. We focused on lower limb exercises because all of our assessments of muscle were in lower limbs. The biopsy, the ultrasound, the DEXA for lower limbs, and lean body mass, all that were focused on lower limbs. And to make them go to the university to train like four or five times a week, we were again concerned about the adherence to the protocol. 
So this was a lower limb only training program, which doesn't take anything away from the study because if you work for lower limbs, there's absolutely no reason to think you would work for upper limbs as well. The magnitude of gains is slightly different between lower and upper limbs, but the response shouldn't be different in terms of between group comparison, I mean. We did a progressive training program Two exercises, leg presses and leg extensions. It seems like not that much of a training, but we do work them very hard. So it's not like a typical weight training session where you go in, you fake your, your first three, <laughs> then you call for assistance in the fourth yeah. set, and then you move to another exercise and you fake for the first three, then you call for help <laughs> in the last one. All sessions, all sets were done to failure, so it's pretty intense, pretty hard every day of training. And we didn't see, this is important, we didn't see any difference between uh, training volume when we compared the vegans and the omnivores. So they had the same training volume at the end of the study. So was it two sets of each? Talk me through. I don't remember by heart. I have to look at the paper, but uh, I think it started with two and it moved up to four or five sets per exercise, something like that. Uh, regular progressive training program, not not anything fancy about it. To be absolutely sure, I have to look. I've got it here. So you built up to four sets of eight to ten. Yes, and uh, starts perhaps at two of twelve, right? Yeah, and and that was for each exercise. So yeah, so it is still quite a bit of volume. Before we get into the results, what you found, one other thing I just thought about here was how important was protein distribution and was there any thought in terms of making sure the two groups were consuming equal doses or close to equal doses of protein throughout the day, throughout their meals? Mm -hmm. We don't know that much about protein distribution. We know it's a cool concept and it sounds good, especially when you look at the physiology. It makes sense. It looks good on paper. It looks good on graphs. It looks good when you're planning your dietary intervention, but we are not absolutely sure up to now if it's a real thing. There are questions about it, but we wanted this not to be an issue as well. So we know what the amount of protein to maximize the response of a single meal is, and we wanted to make sure that all main meals had that much protein. And it, it differed a little bit between groups, but they all had the minimum necessary to maximize the that meal response. So we took care of that too, because we look at their, we have a slightly different dietary pattern here in Brazil than we get uh, in US, Canada, perhaps in Australia, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but our biggest meal in Brazil is lunch, not dinner, as opposed to what you get in North America, where dinner is a bigger meal. So we gave the supplemental protein at the meals that they had the least protein intake. So they all would have the minimum amount to maximize the muscle protein synthetic response. Okay, very good. And in terms of what you were measuring, what were the outcomes? What were you interested in tracking to answer this question? Is there a difference between these two different diets? Okay. Well, our main question was about muscle and hypertrophy. So we wanted to look at this in different ways. And we did. We had different, I would say, level of analysis. We had a, a more macroscopic where we look at lean body mass. And we all know that lean body mass is not just muscle mass, it's muscle mass and much more. So you might get some mixed results when you look at only lean body mass instead of muscle itself. 
So that was our first level of analysis. We run DEXA scans and look at lean body mass in these individuals. We moved up to cross-sectional images of the muscle. And we do have these uh, ultrasound technique where you capture an image of the muscle, the quadriceps muscle, specifically the vestis lateralis. And you get a good picture of the muscle and you can calculate the cross-sectional area. This is cross-validated with magnetic resonance imaging. So you get the same results. But we wanted to go a little bit deeper. So we took muscle biopsy samples from these individuals, from the vessels that there are to both at pre and post and look at the fiber cross-sectional area through histology. So we had a microscopic and a macroscopic way of looking at muscle in the study. So we were sure that we got it all covered. Cool. So the three different measurements of changes in muscle itself, and then you had the strength test as well. Yes. That was sort of like secondary, but yes, we did functional assessment via 1RM testing. So we do have the, the, the strength increase as well in these two groups. Yeah. Okay. So let's go through the findings. After 12 weeks, you ran these tests and you looked at the results. What did you find? We were very happy with whatever we found because we knew people would be happy and upset and uh, depending on, <laughs> <laughs> on the side of the coin they were. Some people would be uh, very happy with this. Some would frown their, their eyebrows and the other way around. So we weren't really worried about what the results would be. So that, again, is very cool because we didn't have any bias going into the study. So what we found were exactly comparable or very similar responses no matter what the measure was, either DEXA scans or the ultrasound imaging or the muscle fiber cross-sectional area, independent of the measurement we we're looking at, the amount of muscle gain was pretty much the same between the two groups, which was very cool. So was the amount of strength that they got. Was this a bit of a surprise among your research group? Like as the 12 weeks of the study was going and you were working with these individuals, because sometimes on paper you forget that their actual individuals are involved in here and you're watching them train and people are working with them. Did you sort of have a feel through the study as to what the results would be? Yes and no, because I don't go look at them because I don't want to be biased in any way. When what we do is that we don't get the student that is doing the assessments know what the individuals are. So the ones doing the training are not the ones doing the assessments and vice versa. So they're blinded. They're blinded. Of course, the individuals are not blinded because they know they're, they're vegans. Mm. They know they're omnivores. But we were blinded to the assessment. So we got this whole bunch of images. They're coded and you're assessing them in the computer. But we don't know which one is which. Just when you get the final results that you do the uncoding and you do the grouping and you see what's going on. But yeah, uh, talking to my student who ran the study how's it going um, yeah they're coming in they're training they're getting stronger she didn't know who was who when we talk about we're the vegans we're the omnivores but yeah we had the sense that what we did was working no matter what we didn't know what the results would be at the end but the intervention we knew throughout the study that it was successful in this way at least so okay so in terms of the outcomes that you measured the two diets were comparable over this 12-week period. Now, as you sort of alluded to before, 
anytime you publish a study, there's going to be people that like it, people that don't like it, people who the results may challenge the way they see the world or what they do personally, or may challenge the nutrition programs they sell or whatever it is. And some of this is sort of could be trolling online, but then there are the sort of valid criticisms that may come from colleagues and people who are very much data-driven, which is obviously a very important part of science is understanding, well, what are the critiques and whatnot? So I'm interested, what sort of valid things have you been challenged on with regards to the study itself or perhaps how the results can and cannot be sort of extrapolated? So you're absolutely right. The fun thing about science is that it can be challenged at any time. And it's not like a final answer to anything. And this is very cool. And we have to stay very open to criticism and try to do better next time. And as you said earlier, this isn't our first dance in this. We have over 200 papers published. So we've been through that. And when we've done it, we did critique other people's work. So we knew what ours would answer and what it wouldn't. And just to go back to a question you just made, we weren't surprised about the results and I can explain you later why not. Because truly inside, we didn't expect it to be much different, a big difference between the two diets when you match them for proper protein intake. We didn't expect that it would make much difference at all. And I can go back to that with more details. But one thing that we pointed out in the study, because it's something that I work on very much, I told you that we do a lot of stuff with chronic conditions or clinical populations. And I do like to work with the elderly a lot. And for for instance, uh, we cannot extrapolate what we found to the elderly population at all. It would be cool if we had the chance to do this study and we're planning on doing something similar. It takes a lot of work to do that with the elderly, but we know the elderly have a a physiological characteristic that is called the anabolic resistance. So they respond less to the same stimulus as compared to a younger counterpart. So if you do the same anabolic stimulus to an elderly person, the response is always much lower than what you would get with a younger individual. And specifically, when you talk about protein and amino acids and leucine, I told you before that the leucine is the trigger amino acid for the whole thing. The leucine threshold seems to be bigger for the elderly. So you would need a bit more of protein. And if you're talking about a plant-based protein, if it's not an isolate, if it's food, you would need a whole bunch of food. And you know that elderly has a, uh, it's difficult to get them to eat a lot. That becomes a problem. When you're thinking of dietary interventions to, to work with plant-based diets that are solely based on food, whole foods, that could be an issue to this population. I talk about a spectrum of how to deal with nutrition in this regard. I I mean, there's a more holistic way to look at nutrition and a more reductionist way to look at it. When you're dealing with a clinical population, let's say I I do have work now running with uh, hospitalized elderly individuals. And we know that once they get in a hospital, they get into bed rest, they lose a lot of muscle. And you have to do what is best for them, what maximizes the response, what would make them lose the less muscle possible. 
And the choice in that sense wouldn't be a plant-based protein at all. It's a different scenario. It's a totally, totally different scenario. But I think you got where I'm trying to get with this. What we did is very confined to the sort of people that we tested. We cannot extrapolate that to elderly, to chronically ill individuals, to in a way, we cannot extrapolate that to very trained athletes, even though I don't think there'll be any difference in that area at all, especially when you think that those who benefit the most from increasing protein to gain muscle is already trained individuals. Mm -hmm. If you take that into account, if you work that perfectly, I would say, in non-trained individuals, it should work just as well when you get trained individuals. So I, I don't see how that could be a very strong argument. Uh, you work with untrained individuals, so it's not valid to, especially when you do understand strength training or resistance training physiology. When you work that hard within three months, these guys are not untrained anymore. They gain a whole bunch of muscle. You see like a 25% increase in muscle cross-sectional area. They won't gain much more throughout the years to be very honest you don't double your muscle mass in your cross-sectional area that doesn't happen unless you're in different strategies or pharmacological <laughs> strategies but that doesn't happen to most people at least you do have very high responders among the population but on average they develop quite a bit of their potential that's what i'm saying so to call them untrained even after three months of very hard training is not very correct to be honest Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised that point about the elderly because I think sometimes in the plant-based community, the importance of protein can kind of be downplayed. And we do know that obviously the amount of protein someone needs as they get over 65 does increase to reduce sarcopenia and osteoporosis. And even speaking to, I've had Volta Longo on my show and a few other people interested in longevity, and they all talk about the importance of increasing protein as someone gets a little older, which is very clearly associated with greater longevity and better health. So I think that's an important point not to take the findings from this study and to apply it to all populations and really just a learning for science in general. Who are the people in the study and therefore what can we say about them? Where are the gaps that we need further research to explore? I saw online there was some people wondering if the results would be the same if the study went on for longer than 12 weeks. And again, this is speculation. And I saw it tended to be people who were more sort of pro-animal protein suggesting that if the acute studies are showing greater anabolic response, how do we know that perhaps there wouldn't have been significant differences if the study duration was longer, say, for example, over a year? That doesn't make much sense at all, Simon, especially using the argument of the acute studies. People don't really understand what these acute studies show. They're very important. We've done it before, but there is a whole bunch of people that misinterpret these results and doesn't really know muscle physiology. 
so it's hard for them to understand what these studies data actually means, you know. Most studies use tracers to assess acute response to whatever, like training or different proteins or whatever strategy. The response in muscle protein synthesis for a period of usually four or five, six hours. And it's incorrect to state that this predicts long-term response, right? Actually, it's the opposite. They're very important studies to understand muscle physiology, but it's incorrect to make a direct association or a linear association with what these studies show with long-term adaptations. And we've done studies in this as well. I can tell you about it. Results are very poor, actually, when you look at this very narrow window of response, like six hours after a stimulus, and try to predict what muscle gain would be. But when you do, because we know, especially when you're doing exercise, because exercise sensitizes the muscle for a very long period to the presence of protein. So when you do, let's say, use deuterate and how do you say that in English? Deuterium oxide to assess muscle protein synthesis that you do over a longer period of time. We've done that 48 hours after an exercise session. And then we had this trial where we had the individuals, there were similar characteristics to this. They very physically active, but they're not strength trained. I forgot to say that our individuals were physically active too. They were just not currently strength trained. So we did this 10-week study. We assessed muscle protein synthesis 48 hours after the first, the third, and the last training session. And what we found is after the first session, the muscle protein synthetic response, this 48-hour muscle protein synthetic response, didn't have anything to do with the amount of muscle they gained after 10 weeks of training. When you look at the third session, you start to get a good association between the two. And the association was very, very high when you look at the last session because there are adaptations, there's muscle damage at the beginning of a training program. This seizes off throughout the sessions and you start directing that muscle protein synthesis response towards muscle building, not repairing the damage that occurred during training. So when you look at a longer period, you get a bigger picture of what is going on in the muscle that actually relates to long-term gains but the studies that were done with different protein sources they don't tell us much they tell us a lot about muscle physiology as a function of different intakes of different proteins but they don't do a good job when you try to predict response in the long term okay so the main point there being that you don't suspect there would be differences between these two groups if this study was to be carried out over a longer duration. The slope of the gains in muscle tended to plateau at the point that we stopped the study. You don't keep gaining muscle like crazy after. It's hard for people to relate because they don't train like this when they once get into the gym. So it takes a little bit longer, but everyone has experienced this. Even those who train like for 10, 15 years, bodybuilders, they don't keep gaining muscle equally throughout the years. They have a very steep gain at first, and it tends to plateau again, assuming no pharmacological interventions are in the yeah. game. But uh, we call that the newbie gains when someone when someone starts out, and then yeah, you're right. It gets it gets a lot slower, and it's much more of a, a grind after you've been doing it for <laughs> for some time. 
The other thing I want to talk to you about here is the plant-based diet itself. It was around 50 something, maybe 60 grams of soy protein isolate a day, perhaps a little lower than 60. Do you think the response would have been similar if more of the protein was coming from whole plant foods? I don't think it would make any difference, actually. What I think, and I always talk about this, it's feasible, but it's hard to do. If you're wanting to bump up your protein intake using whole foods only, that can be done with a vegan diet. You know that better than I do, of course. But there are specific combinations, there are recipes, there are ways to make preparations that are high in protein, but you have to be knowledgeable about this. You need some support from people who know what they're doing. Otherwise, all you need is a whole bunch of food which you cannot take. Or if you take, you're taking in that much more calories as well. You're taking in that much more fat, carbs, even fiber. Fibers are awesome, but you don't need like a truckload of fiber, right? And that might not be that good to some people. So it's feasible, but you need to be surrounded by people who can direct you towards the right path. So that is something that I think you do marvelously, by the way. There are people who really know their stuff when they're talking about this. And that's what people who are contemplating the idea of moving to a vegan diet should do, get help from people who know their stuff. Yeah. The main point you're making there is if you were to remove that soy protein isolate, if you didn't appropriately plan it, it may require a whole heap of food, extra calories, which then can have an effect on body composition and, and as you say, perhaps way too much fiber and how you feel in terms of your digestion. So there are ways to plan around that where you're focusing more on tofu or tempeh or seitan as opposed to rices and potatoes and whole grains and foods like that. I've got a question for you in terms of overall nutrition. A lot of what we're talking about here is the protein component. And I think you've spoke very well to what's important there. You talked about the 1.6 gram per kilo sort of threshold. You spoke about the importance of leucine. Where do carbohydrates come into this conversation with regards to supporting resistance training adaptations? I'll get to that, but if you allow me, I have a comment on what you just said. Actually, two comments. First, as you allude to, animal foods are more dense in protein, so you need less food to get more protein when you're dealing with animal sources. And one other uh, situation where it might get tricky is when you're dealing with calorie restriction diets. Because when you do calorie restriction, in order to keep muscle, you need to bump up your protein intake as well. And when you're doing a vegan diet that is whole foods only, that might get tricky as well. There are ways to plan around this, as you said, but you need to look for people who, who know what they're doing to, to help you out. I, I think overall, although it can be done on whole foods, I'll say from my personal experience, it is certainly made much easier and it's much more convenient with the addition of a good plant protein powder. Definitely. And there's nothing wrong with this. You go to a gym, the first thing you see is people shaking with whey protein. So why can't vegans do the same with their plant proteins? I agree. So no problem with that at all. Uh, one cool thing, when you look at leucine in our table, you'll see that leucine was lower in a vegan diet, actually. 
a bit lower, not much, but lower than the omnivores. Mm. Still enough to maximize the anabolic response because there's a threshold to leucine as well. Mm. So leucine is cool. You want leucine in, in your protein, but you have to know that there is a threshold for that as well. And what we did seemed to be enough to maximize the response. When you got more leucine, as in the omnivorous diet, you didn't get a better response because of that. And to move on with the carbs, there are two ways to approach this. First is very reductionist as well. And when you think about, do you need carbs to gain muscle? No, you don't. It doesn't help any into increasing the muscle protein synthetic response. That is not to say that you don't need carbs in your diet. It's a very different thing. And people need to make that separation. No, carbs won't maximize or it's not going to optimize the anabolic response of the protein. It's not. That's not how it happens. But you worked out. You spend muscle glycogen. You want to work out tomorrow again. You need to refill. So, yes, carbohydrates are very important for training. And you need to train in order to gain muscle, actually training is that much more important than protein. So if you don't train properly, don't expect protein to make any miracles. So you do need to refuel and carbs are very important in that sense. So on that, and there's a really good point there that you made, is that the resistance training is sending the greatest signal for muscle protein synthesis over and above protein. And we know that like you could go and eat as much protein as you want. And if you're not doing resistance training, you're not building all of this muscle out of nowhere, right? So I think most people can sort of understand that. You need that resistance stimulus. My question is, you're speaking to the importance of carbohydrates there in terms of replenishing glycogen, which is the sort of glucose storage in our muscle and providing the energy that we need to carry out a workout. Do we know from research what the difference is, I guess, in terms of the signal from resistance training between individuals who are eating a diet that contains carbohydrates versus, say, a ketogenic diet that is, for lack of a better word, deficient in carbohydrates? There are some work out there, not much. They're most focused on endurance training, actually. And what we know so far, the best studies, there are decent results, but specifically about endurance performance, we know that you might compromise your performance, to be very honest. Especially when you're dealing with endurance, carbohydrates is very, very, very important. It is, of course, for strength training as well, but usually you don't deplete muscle glycogen in a single session of resistance training. But when you look at athletes, they do much more than just a single resistance training session in a day. They might go in early at the gym and they do their resistance training workout. Later on, they do a field workout, even like rugby or whatever it is that they play. So there are multiple sessions. So it becomes much important because you spend much of your glycogen in your early morning resistance training workout and you want to do a rugby practice in the afternoon. How are you going to do that if you don't have muscle glycogen? You're going to do it, but how can you do it properly if you don't refuel? So ketogenic diets in the context of sport 
It's not a thing. It's been tested by very, very important people. Louise Park is an awesome scientist. She dedicated her career to study endurance training and carbohydrate metabolism. She's done some fantastic work with ketogenic diets. And by now, uh, what we know is that it's not the best of the ideas. When you go into resistance, there's much less work. It is less important if you're looking at the regular gym rat that goes in and wants to get big. It's not going to mess his results that much. But if you're looking at an athlete and resistance training is just one of the components of his training schedule, then you have a problem. Okay, gym rat. I love that saying. To round this one out, let me summarize a couple of things and you tell me if I've got this and then add to it in any sort of way that you feel is important. If someone's listening and they are a healthy young adult, they're wanting to build muscle, improve their strength, then when it comes to protein, the amount is very important, reaching at least 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. Now, some of these listeners are people that follow plant predominant style diets. So it could be a Mediterranean or pescatarian, but some would be plant exclusive as well. The most important thing being that total amount of protein is achieved. As you said, the addition of a protein powder can be helpful in reaching that amount. It can make it more convenient. It can mean less calories overall. For people who are following a plant-exclusive diet, I tend to tell them to look for a protein powder that on the packet says it contains at least two to three grams of leucine. In terms of protein distribution, you're saying that there's not a whole lot of hard evidence to suggest that even distribution across the day is superior to, say, having all of your protein in one or two meals? But uh, it still sounds like a good idea. And I would still recommend based on what we have from physiology experiments, it sounds like a good idea. And that's the recommendation that we do with a, with a bit of a hesitation. But yes, we need more data to be very certain about this. Okay, so more data to come on that. But correct me if I'm wrong. The rationale for that is that say you consume 120 grams of protein, that's your total target. If you have 30 grams across four different meals, the idea is that you'll be able to spike muscle protein synthesis four times as opposed to once or twice. Perfect, because the muscle protein synthesis response, it's transient, right? You eat your protein and you get a rise in muscle protein synthetic response and it tends to go back down and it lasts about like three to four hours if there's exercise involved is a little longer, like five to six hours. So spreading it out means that you get multiple spikes throughout the day. And when you're thinking of muscle protein balance, that's the best of the ideas. But there is still not data to show that this is actually determined better results. But again, it is a good idea on paper, at least. So the data that we would need is sort of similar studies to what you've done where you're actually measuring changes in muscle size and strength? Definitely. There are only a few studies, two or three that have done it. They're not the best of the studies. It's very hard to control this. Very, very hard to control this. So people who are listening who doesn't have any previous experience with research, please appreciate what these people do because it's very hard to conduct a study like that to make people eat in a certain way that is not their habitual for a very long time 
just so you can prove a point. So there are studies to do. We're working on this right now as well. We have one pilot study, but it's not very well controlled as we wanted to. But again, there are not enough evidence to make this a sure thing. So what's the hard part of that study to control, to get the subjects to make sure that they're adhering to that protein distribution? Yes, adherence is the biggest problem. You might circumvent this if you give them the meals that they need to eat, but that adds cost in a big way because you're of course. dealing with like 60, 70 subjects over three months and you've given them everything that they eat and they have to like what you give them. That's a different thing. And you have to assume that they don't have a social life, that they don't go out with their friends and eat outside of the schedule hours and everything else. So it is very hard to conduct this sort of study. Yeah, that's tough. That's a lot of mouths to feed. I think any mother any mother listening will be able to relate to that. And, and, and the heart of the study is distribution, right? So you have to have different distributions between the studies. If you break that up, you don't have a study anymore. So to be very strict about what you eat, when you eat, is the heart of the study. So that's why it's so difficult. And we can invite people to try and do this for a week, and I'm sure they won't be able to. Okay, well, hopefully... Hopefully something happens there in the future. It's certainly, it's an interesting idea to test whether separating your protein out in multiple meals is better or if you can have all of your protein in one or two meals for people that prefer to eat like that. But for now, what you're saying is if you can, distribute it out evenly, but total protein is the most important thing. And above that, resistance training being the most important thing. What else is important here? If someone's listening and they do want to build muscle. We've ticked off protein. We've ticked off the resistance training, the progressive overload sort of program. What else would you recommend from your research and reading other research for people to look at trying to do within their lifestyle, be it calories or supplements like creatine or things like that? We can talk creatine, yes, but to close this circle, this what is needed, I, I think would be recovery, Simon. And that would include sleep. And there's a whole bunch of cool research that's been doing with sleep deprivation or the effects of proper sleep, proper recovery on muscle and all other systems of our body. And it's amazing how much of a difference it makes to have a proper night of sleep to everything, actually. I'm just out of curiosity, you didn't ask me that, but we're running a trial where we're doing sleep deprivation in young subjects, and we know this affects their glucose response to a meal. Just three or four nights of bad sleep. These are young individuals. They're not older with comorbidities, none of that. Three or four nights of bad sleep, they get a bad glucose response to a meal. And what we're trying to do is to see that increasing protein at breakfast, sort of like rescues, not totally, but at least a bit of the, the glucose response to the meal because of the effects of protein on glucose metabolism it, as well. Is that a, a sort of disruption of circadian rhythms? What's, what's happening there? It, it's very hard to say, but it seems like it. It seems like it. But uh, there are so many things that goes on when you don't recover that it's hard to pinpoint a single thing. But it does have something to do with circadian rhythm, yes. And in terms of building muscle, is a theory around sleep and recovery that the better the sleep, 
the faster and better you're recovering and therefore the more volume that you can do and the better you can train to send that signal to grow? That too, but what's been shown recently is that sleep deprivation might compromise your anabolic response as well. So not only you cannot train as good as you could, if you do train as good as you could, you won't get the same anabolic response. So two problems with the sleep deprivation, it messes up both systems, your ability to train and your ability to respond to the training. So more reason to zoom in on sleep, not just for general health, but also for your progress in the gym. So setting up that sleep routine and trying to get as good a rest as possible. What about creatine? What about other supplements? What else should people think about in terms of their nutrition? We've done a whole bunch of studies with creatine over the years, and it's very safe to say that creatine is one of the biggest supplements for vegans who are strength training. We know that food sources of creatine are mostly or almost exclusively animal sources. They do get creatine in plants, but mostly like a trace of creatine, you don't get that much creatine actually, such that you cannot rely on plant sources to get what you need of creatine daily. We had the opportunity to work with Roger Harris, the precursor of creatine studies in the field of sports nutrition. So we learn a lot from him. And what we know now with studies that we've done in the labs and following his studies is that the initial level of muscle creatine sort of like determines how much you will gain when you do a supplementation protocol. And we've tested that with vegetarians, actually. They weren't vegans. We had vegetarians and omnivores. They came into the lab. We did phosphorus MRI scan so we can trace phosphorus in the muscle. So we measure phosphorocreatine in the muscles of these individuals before and after a very standard protocol of creatine supplementation when we observed double the increase in the vegetarians when compared to omnivores. They all got to the same level. They all got to the same level, but the vegetarians came from a very much lower level than the omnivores. And the amount of gain in total muscle creatine is actually associated with the benefits that you get in performance. So if you're starting very high, if you eat a lot of meat, if you have a lot of creatine in your muscle already and you do a supplementation protocol, you might get a little increase in muscle creatine, but you won't feel it performance-wise. It doesn't translate into increased performance. In order to translate into performance, you need to have a big increase. And those who experiment, big increase are the ones with lower contents at first, vegetarian in this case. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Yeah, I've been supplementing with five grams of creatine for, gosh, over six, seven years now, daily, just to keep those levels saturated. And I think there's also some, I guess, emerging or building evidence to suggest it may be beneficial for cognition as well, which is interesting. Now, outside of creatine, 
are there any other supplements that you would recommend? You know, if a friend was sitting down and said, Hamilton, you know, set me up with the best program, including supplements, are there any other supplements or would you suggest people save their money? Uh, the list of supplements is endless, right? Uh, you walk into one of those supplement stores and you get hundreds, thousands of different supplements. We know five or six of them are really worth looking at. Specifically, when we talk about building muscle, I wouldn't say protein is a supplement. Protein is a nutrient. You can deal with this as a supplement if you're buying it out of the shelf and in powder form, but it's still a nutrient. So protein aside, creatine is what you got to work with. We've been studying beta-alanine as well for quite a while. We do have very good data on performance, especially those that are limited by acidosis, muscle acidosis. But the matter of the fact is that resistance training is usually not limited by muscle acidosis. We did test that as well. We do have a paper on that. And supplementing with beta-alanine didn't enhance training volume as regularly performed at a gym. But what we're doing now is that, okay, it didn't work with regular resistance training because we found that it's not limited by acidosis, but there are other forms of training that might be, such as CrossFit, for example. So we're testing with CrossFit now. And we have a hunch it might work. So you bump up your performance. So if you train better, you might adapt better. You might get more muscle because of that. So depending on what your training is, perhaps beta-alanine might be a good idea too. Yeah, beta-alanine seems to be fairly popular here in Australia. And it's that supplement where for some people you get a bit of a tingly feeling after you've had it. The other one that definitely has become popular in Australia anyway. In a lot of the this sort of pre-workout, there's a lot of these pre-workout supplements that seem to contain a blend. Some of them contain caffeine, creatine, beta-alanine, and L-citrulline. I wonder, have you looked at L-citrulline much at all before? Yeah, there doesn't seem to be anything there, to be very honest. Uh, so I wouldn't bother. And actually, I must touch on this because this is a common misconcept as well. When we talk about pre-workout supplements, the whole idea is all wrong, Simon. You shouldn't have creatine and beta-alanine as pre-workout supplement. Why is that? Because they need to be accumulated in a muscle chronically. If you take creatine now and go work out, this is your first intake of creatine. It does nothing to you. So as it won't do anything to you if you take beta-alanine. But to follow up on what you're saying about the tingling sensation, that might be what people are looking for. Because it's weird, but the placebo effect is such a thing. And we've done studies on this as well. If we test people right now for beta-alanine as a pre-workout supplement, they never took it before, they're taking it right now. If they feel the tingling and they know what it is, oh yeah, it's beta-alanine, it's the, the tingling feel. 
they perform better because of that, because of the expectation. Mm -hmm. But you don't have more beta alanine in your muscle. There's no reason for you to think that there's a physiological explanation for that other than the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. So as pre-workout supplement, caffeine is the best of the ideas. Mm -hmm. And as you've done to yourself, taking regularly creatine is the way to do it, as it would be with beta alanine. So you yep. need to accumulate that in a muscle. And that takes a while, especially with beta alanine. It takes about at least four weeks, at least four weeks for you to get enough beta alanine in your muscle that it makes any difference. I'm glad that you clarified that. I was trying to explain that to a friend that creatine and beta alanine, you just need to saturate. So the timing doesn't matter so much, but that is an interesting point that you make about beta alanine around the tingling. I can certainly see how that would make people put a little bit more effort into their workout, thinking that they're getting some assistance from it. And, and hey, supplements are the ones that don't get you that feeling because yeah. uh, there, are, there are ways around this as well. And what we've done in our lab is to work with the slow release capsules. Mm. So you don't get a rapid rise in blood beta alanine. So you don't get the paresthesia feeling. Uh, and yeah. you, you still get the same results without the uncomfort. I would say uncomfortable because I, I wouldn't like to have the tingling sensation anyway. <laughs> For me personally, because I was trying beta alanine, I was reading the research and I sort of saw a bit of mixed results in the science. I wanted to see if I felt any benefit and I did get the tingling. So knowing what you said then though about saturation being the most important thing, I split the dose up morning and night and found that doing that got rid of the tingling. So maybe that's another strategy for people out there who experience that. This has been super, super enlightening. I've learned a great deal from you and I really appreciate the work you're doing in the field of nutrition science. I think this latest paper that you did with your team is very thought-provoking and it's a unique study as we discussed and much needed. I'm wondering, you mentioned the protein distribution study that you're sort of looking at and potentially delving into deeper in the future. What other studies would you like to perform or see from here to perhaps build on this study that we've spoken about or to fill in some of the gaps in the literature? Yeah. Originally, Simon, we wanted to do four groups in that study. We wanted to do the two that we did, the two with 1.6, but we wanted two more with 0.8 grams per kg body mass. So we wanted to test. Back in our heads, we knew that when you give enough protein, you shouldn't see any difference, as we didn't see. But what about if you eat less than you need in that condition? Does source or the quality of protein makes any difference? So that's still to be answered. We couldn't perform all four groups at once, but we know people that study the same subject and they reach out and they, oh, what about this? And we've got to talk about that. So they're, they're doing it. And this data might be out soon enough. So that's one thing. Another thing is to look at elderly population, as we talked earlier, and see if it makes any difference for special populations, I would put in that way. Especially in the sense that there are physiological particularities that might make the response different in any way. So these would be the two main questions when we were talking about protein source that we would address at the moment. We're doing lots of stuff with protein, but not with the source itself. 
Very cool. And just one thing that came to mind, I can't let you go without asking this question. I kind of glossed over it. With regards to supplements, the other one is these BCAA and essential amino acid supplements and sort of isolated leucine, etc. Knowing what you know about total protein and leucine threshold, do you see a role for BCAA supplements or essential amino acid supplements for anyone or for vegans? I don't think so, Simon, and I'll tell you why. Well, I won't be brief about this because I want to be precise. We did a study last year. We published a study on leucine supplementation. No protein source in that study. We're talking about omnivores, resistance-trained individuals. They eat at least 1.6 grams per kg body mass in their diets already, and we supplement them with a whole bunch of leucine, 10 grams a day a whole bunch of leucine with the idea to test if given additional anabolic stimuli via the leucine supplementation would make up to a bigger gain in muscle mass. Zero effect. And the zero effect is related to a very simple explanation. They already ate enough protein in their diet. So they already had maximum stimulation of this whole mechanism that we talked about the whole time. Giving additional leucine didn't make any difference because they were already above the leucine threshold. So giving additional leucine doesn't matter because you're already beyond your threshold if you eat what you should eat. So no effect for these people. We have this paper. It should be out really, really soon. It's in these final stages of review. We work with elderly and we gave them a leucine as well, quite a bit of leucine, 7.5 grams of leucine. They're eating uh, regular RDA recommendations, uh, 0.8 grams per kg body mass. They're exercising and we're giving them a whole bunch of leucine. So to these people who doesn't eat enough protein, I'm giving the boost for the muscle protein synthetic response that they need. Does it make any difference? The response is no, again, it doesn't. And why does it not? Protein is a bunch of amino acids, right? The, the analogy that we learn when we're in school, like in high school, is that protein is a wall and the amino acids are bricks, right? It's always the analogy that we learn from. So in order to build walls, we need the bricks. We need enough surplus of amino acids in order to build more walls. So to translate that into muscle, we need an excess of amino acids so we can build more muscle. And muscle, it's an, uh, as any other protein in our bodies, in a constant state of turnover. You're always degrading and building up muscle, as you do with your hair, with your nails, with your skin, with everything in our bodies. So if you don't eat enough protein, but you do get the stimulus for increased muscle protein synthesis, where do you get the amino acids to do it? You degrade muscle. Other muscles. So you keep trading off. You degrade, you get the amino acids that you need, and you pretend like you're building more muscle, but you're not because you're increasing the turnover as a whole. You're increasing breakdown and synthesis in a similar proportion. Giving just one of the elements is not enough. Mm. That's the so same that's... for the branching chain amino acids. You do have leucine there. You give the branching chain amino acids uh, with the illusion that you build muscle, but it won't because you don't have the other amino acids that you need. And if you already have the other amino acids that you need, you don't need the, the branching chain amino acids or the leucine alone. 
Does it make any sense? What I mean? Yeah, it does. And it's a, it's a nice analogy. So essentially, probably not the best idea to rely on the essential amino acid or BCAA supplements, but instead look to a plant-based protein powder that has a very good total essential amino acid profile along with a good leucine amount. Perfect. The other supplement I'd like to ask you about is HMB, which I know that you've studied and is often a supplement that's sort of thrown out there when we're talking about bodybuilding and improving strength and lean muscle. Yeah, HMB has a funny story behind it. And we did a very nice study on this recently. It got the attention of people back in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. This group from the United States, they did a study that all the scientific community were very skeptical. I don't know how to say that. Skeptical? Skeptical, yeah. Uh, yep. They tested HMB in bodybuilders, in resistance-trained individuals, and they found this ridiculous effect, like 7.5 kgs of increase in lean body mass in eight weeks or 12 weeks, something wow. like that. It's something uh, unthinkable. The results are even greater than when you use anabolic steroids. So, so you can have a feel of how impressive the results are. That's why people were so skeptical about it. Not only us, but other groups. We, we have a very good connection with Dr. Stuart Phillips from Canada. He ran a study on this as well. So we have these both studies that goes against the, the, this idea that HMB is so magical. HMB is a metabolite, it's a leucine metabolite. So it follows the same idea that it might increase the muscle protein synthesis. Therefore, it will be anabolic, the resistance training individuals. And what we did is that we got these resistance trained individuals. They were already trained. They're very strong, very muscular. They trained with us for 12 weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Placebo, HMB. Similar testing as we've done with this with the vegans, except for the muscle biopsy, no results whatsoever, as we should expect that there wouldn't be, because it's the same logic. You're already eating enough protein. HMB won't do anything magic for you. Even if it does, if you eat enough protein, even if HMB increases muscle protein synthesis, you can't do anything more than the enough protein that you're already taking is doing for you. If you eat less than you should, by getting the protein synthesis up, doesn't mean that you get muscle building because you don't have the bricks. So what was it that you think was wrong with that study back in 2014 that showed seven kilograms of lean mass? And how do you think the researchers missed that? I don't think they missed this, Simon. I think there was a whole thing about this. Uh, data looked very funny. If you look at the paper, you see very equivalent data between the groups at baseline, which is very odd. But most of all, there this big conflict of interest from the authors. They were related with the company that has the patent for the, the supplement they were testing. And there were even people from the company in the paper doing the analysis. So... Conflict of interest is a big thing in this area, right? So uh, I'm not saying they did anything deliberate, but everything that came afterwards do not support this at all. So, Yeah, I guess the conflict of interest is enough to warrant being skeptical, to look at the data a little closer, I guess. Very magical data, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Hamilton. Thank you so much for joining me all the way from Brazil. We made it happen, and uh, I'm sure the listeners learned a lot today, so I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me over. It was very fun. I hope people like. Thank you so much.
Yeah, and come back and let's do this again when uh, perhaps a few of your new studies are published. Anytime. There we go. I don't know about you, but my biggest takeaway from this conversation, what I think is one of the most important things, one of the most important learnings for all of us, isn't even to do with the particular study we were speaking about. Although I will come to that. Of course, there are some interesting takeaway points from that too. What I loved about this conversation was that it's an example of how a primary researcher thinks. Primary researchers, those conducting the actual science themselves, speak a little differently to, say, perhaps journalists reporting on a study or people on social media. This is probably something that you picked up on too. You know, these primary researchers are not afraid to say what we know and what we don't know. They don't over-extrapolate and there is less absolutes in their language. They are constantly shaping their hypothesis and are open to critique and being challenged about their findings. That, my friends, is science. And as a learning, that really does speak to me personally on a very, very deep level. You know, as far back as I can remember into my childhood, when I was probably five years old or or so, I can remember mountains and mountains, piles and piles of scientific papers on the coffee table, on the kitchen table, in dad's office, in his car. My dad has conducted primary research looking at vascular stiffness, a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes for 30 plus years. And so I've been brought up in this environment with this deep, deep appreciation for what science is and how to communicate science effectively and with humility. Another takeaway for me was the importance of studies like this one. I love the fact that studies like this, looking closer at plant-based diets, are being conducted. It's stunningly clear we need as many people as possible shifting towards a more plant-based approach around the world. And if you are a regular listener of this show, you'll know that I quite regularly say that while it's not a silver bullet, it is integral to curbing chronic disease, to mitigating climate change, to restoring biodiversity and preserving fresh water. We know that. And thankfully, most people around the world are coming around to this. But showing people that they can shift to this way of eating without sacrificing their physical capabilities, their strength, and ability to grow muscle will help address some of the inevitable fear that comes with moving away from a diet that heroes animal protein. I know myself, having built over 10 kilograms of muscle since shifting to a completely plant-exclusive diet, that it's absolutely possible. But anecdotes are not enough. While they're interesting, they are extremely weak forms of evidence. You can find an anecdote to support almost anything. Take the carnivore diet, for example. What we need is high-quality studies like this performed by Hamilton and his team to substantiate what plant-based athletes are experiencing firsthand. 
when it comes to this particular study, I think it's a, a really good reminder that what's most important, what's most important for building muscle and strength is the training stimulus, resistance training performed in a progressive overload manner, which in short means increasing the volume, sets, reps, and or weight in a progressive manner. I learned something back in my physiotherapy days very early on that speaks to this. Structure reflects function. Structure reflects function. Constantly demanding more of our body sends a signal to our muscles that they need to grow. And when it comes to the nutrition component, although it's less important than the primary signal, our training, we do need the building blocks for the body to then get to work so that we have more muscle protein synthesis happening than muscle protein breakdown. In order to do this, this single most important part of our nutrition is making sure we consume enough protein. The optimal amount being around 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. This is the level shown by previous research to maximally trigger muscle protein synthesis. What this study adds is that the source, plants or animal foods, doesn't seem to be relevant. Not relevant within the context of untrained individuals over three months anyway. But as Hamilton said in our chat, it's unlikely this would be different in trained individuals and there would be really no scientific reason to believe things would change if this study was longer. After our chat, I had a few further questions and Hamilton and I spoke a little more and I asked him if he would expect results to be similar for females. This study was on young, healthy male adults only and he thought they would be similar and that there was not much reason to think otherwise. I also asked him about the elderly and he said even in an elderly population, it would be a stretch right now to presume that animal protein would be better, would be superior. However, if protein source was ever going to make a difference, it would be for this population. Because as we get older, particularly above age 60 or so, we are more likely to develop anabolic resistance, which is a, a fancy word for saying that it becomes more difficult for us to grow and maintain muscle. Ultimately, we need more studies looking at this in elderly populations. So hopefully we get some more studies looking at this in the not too distant future. Of course, it's a very important area of research given how crucial it is to maintain muscle mass and bone strength as we get into the later years of our life. The other thing I was interested in was what the vegans were eating, what whole foods were they eating in this study. And so I asked Hamilton about the type of foods the vegans in the study were eating. And he said that they were not eating tofu, tempeh, seitan, etc. These are high protein plant-based foods, foods that I would eat regularly. So it makes sense why they were getting almost 60 grams of their protein per day from soy protein shakes. Personally speaking, I get about 40 grams of protein from a protein shake per day and the rest from whole foods. I'm able to, to get away with slightly less protein powder while reaching that 1.6 grams per kilo because I include good amounts of protein-rich plant foods like tofu and tempeh, seitan, etc. All right, I think that's enough learning for today. 
Hopefully you found the information in this episode helpful. If you aren't out there to try and absolutely optimize lean muscle growth and strength, then while it probably doesn't make much sense for you to be calculating or even loosely tracking your protein intake on a daily basis, it is still a good idea to regularly incorporate protein-rich plant foods in your meals. By far, the legume food group will bring the most protein to your plate, along with seitan, which is a meaty-like product that's made from wheat protein. Consuming at least three good serves of these a day should be the bare minimum, the bare minimum for anyone following a plant-predominant or plant-exclusive diet. Also, it may come as a surprise to know that I'm by no means opposed to protein powder for those who aren't training the house down in the gym. Protein powder is not just for athletes. My mom has one plant protein shake a day. Having reviewed her diet and knowing she doesn't have a huge appetite, this was something that I recommended. Staying strong by keeping a good amount of lean muscle and maintaining strong bones is good for all of us, irrespective of our athletic endeavors. So don't skip your tofu, chickpeas, lentils, and tempeh. And if you need to add a protein powder or a plant-based burger to consume a little more, in the context of a diet that's built on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We need to shift past this idea that only foods in a whole, completely unprocessed form are best. While that's usually the case, it's not always the case. It really does depend on one's overall dietary pattern, their age, their goals, and individual circumstances, like my mum's appetite, for example. And with that, it's a wrap. Time to land this plane. I look forward to hearing what you thought of this episode in your Instagram posts and podcast reviews. Thank you so much for nerding out with me. I appreciate you, all of you. Let's link up again in a few days' time for another episode. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.